Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Let me give you a third welcome to Hebron this morning. It's great to see you, and we do trust that uh, God will speak to us as we consider his word together this morning. Now, we're uh, continuing a study in the book of Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. As Ollie said earlier on, the, the theme today, or the heading today, is the kindness and the judgment of God. Let's just take time to pray. Our God and Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to each and every heart bowed in your presence. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, and we pray that this might be for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just read the passage uh, through together. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one According to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Amen. May God bless his word. In the city where the great explorer Christopher Columbus lived the final years of his life, they erected a monument to him. And written on that monument were three words in Latin. Ne plus ultra. Ne plus ultra. In English, they translate to no more beyond. No more beyond. And in the 1400s when Columbus lived, the prevailing belief at that time was that there was nothing more to discover. There was no more land beyond the western shores of Europe. And the words ne plus ultra were written along the edges of ancient maps. There was no more beyond. But then guess what? In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and he discovered... The Americas. 
There was more beyond, much more beyond. So on that monument to Columbus, there is an image of a lion, and it has its paw on the first of those three Latin words, the word nay, or no in English. And the lion is snatching that word away, as if to say in defiance, see, Columbus told you there was more beyond, plus ultra. There was much more land beyond. Columbus was right and the world was wrong. Now here's the parallel. There is a parallel. That when it comes to life, and when it comes to your life that you're living, I think it would be safe to say that the prevailing view in our Western world is that there is no more beyond this life. Ne plus ultra. That this life is all that we have. That death ends it all. There is no God to face. There is no God to whom we are accountable. There is no more beyond. In the words of John Lennon, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. And in one sense, Lenin was right. It is easy to imagine that there is no heaven or hell. It is easy to imagine that there is no afterlife, that there is no other world, that there is nothing beyond this life. And for most, that's an attractive prospect. Because you can live your life as you please. There are no consequences. There is no morality. There is no God to hold you to account. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We come to Romans chapter 2 this morning. And Paul's great theme is that there is more beyond this life. Much more. God clearly teaches us that there is an after this. In the book of Hebrews, the writer to the, to the Hebrews writes in chapter 9 verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this, after this comes judgment. And it's this theme of judgment that Paul focuses on in our passage. That future, final judgment of God. It's actually a continuing theme from chapter 1 verse 18. Paul back there teaches that God's judgment not only has a future uh, dimension to it, it also has a present aspect. In chapter 1 verse 18, Paul writes... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's in the present tense. The wrath of God is being revealed. You might remember Willie took us through that closing section of Romans chapter 1. That dark catalogue of the the sins and depravity of humanity. Paul is saying this is what it looks like when man rejects God, when, when God gives man over to his sinful desires. There are consequences. People pay the price 
in their own lives for living how they please. Society pays the price. We are paying the price now in our society for turning our backs on God. And this is the present aspect of God's judgment. That when you refuse to worship the Creator, you begin to destroy His creation and yourself. Now, Paul in chapter 2, he's looking to that final, that future aspect of the judgment of God. We see that in verse 5. Paul speaks about the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, when we come to chapter 2, it's probably helpful to explain that Paul here adopts a, a literary style. He imagines that there is a critic listening to him, listening to his argument. And this critic occasionally stops Paul and raises an objection or a question, and Paul then deals with it. He answers the critic's objection. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Therefore takes us back to the end of chapter 1. Paul there, he lists the, the depravity, the sin of humanity. And it's as though this critic, this imaginary critic, is sitting in the audience. I, I, I imagine that Paul is preaching, maybe to an audience like this, and there is someone in the audience, and he is nodding vehemently as Paul is, is preaching. And he's agreeing with everything that Paul is saying as he makes that list at the end of chapter 1. Yes, Paul, those wicked, those sinful pe people, they are all deserving of the judgment of God but not me. I'm not like them, Paul. And this critic, you see, he's, he's what you would describe as a moralist. He lives his life by a strict moral code, by rules and regulations. And it's about uh, the externalities of keeping the rules and the regulations. He's a deeply religious person. But he's a hypocrite. He's a religious hypocrite. Paul most likely has, has a Jewish person in mind. That becomes clear when you, you come later down the, the chapter into verse 17. But this critic, he's agreeing with Paul. Yes, Paul, they're all guilty. But I'm not like them. I haven't done the things that they've done. I, I'm different. Paul says you're no different. Look at verse 1. You have no excuse. Every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Look, says Paul, in judging others, you are overlooking the sin in your own heart. You are judging on externals. God looks on the internals. God looks right into your heart to your thoughts, to your motives, not just your actions. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man. And this is actually, if we step back, this is part of a bigger argument that Paul is building to in chapter 3. That all have sinned. And in chapter 3, verse 19, Paul brings the whole of humanity 
into God's courtroom. And he says that every mouth may be stopped. That the whole world may be held accountable to God. No exception. It's actually not a new truth. The psalmist spoke of the very same thing. Psalm 130. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Who could stand before you, O Lord? Now back in chapter 1, verse 17, that that great opening verse of the book of Romans, Paul is declaring his theme for the entire, um, the entire book. It is to explain the glorious gospel of God, the good news of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But before we can understand the power of the gospel, we need to understand why we need it. We need to plumb the depths of our own sinfulness and to see ourselves as God sees us. And this is what Paul is doing in this section of Romans. And when I appreciate my need of the gospel... And recognize my own sinfulness before God. Then I can embrace it. And I can know its power to save me. And to change me. You know it's one thing to sing amazing grace. But it's another thing to know and feel that God's grace is amazing. I wonder, Christian, if you actually feel that God's grace is amazing. Now let's look at our passage. I want to look at it under two headings. Uh, Johan, you can maybe put up uh, the next slide on the screen. just gives you the, the headings up on the screen. But Paul is answering the objections of this critic. And in verses 3 to 4, it's apparent that this, this critic, this religious hypocrite... He has made some seriously wrong presumptions about God. And so Paul sets about unmasking the presumption. And then in verses 5 to 11, Paul then goes on to make sure that this critic, that he understands the implications of the judgment of God. And so he lays out the principles of God's judgment. And so that's the second heading, understanding the principles. So let's look at verses 3 and 4 first, unmasking presumption. This critic, he makes two huge presumptions about God and his judgment. Now let's look at the first one in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, that's our critic, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, Paul is exposing his hypocrisy. Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God. That's his first presumption. He supposes that he will escape from the judgment of God. That somehow he will be exempted. Perhaps he thinks because he's a religious person or because he's a Jew that he has some special privilege or some relationship with God and that somehow he's earned an exemption to the judgment of God. 
It's actually a common presumption that people hold on even, even today. That, that, if, that if I adopt a religious lifestyle, that if perhaps I attend church, that if I live a moral life, people think that they will escape the judgment of God. Now look at verse 4. Here's his second presumption. Paul says, or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? See, this man thinks that he knows God, but he really doesn't know God. He thinks that it's God's business to forgive him and that he doesn't need to change. I know that God is kind. I know that God is patient. He's forbearing and God will therefore not judge me or punish me. He's a God of love. You know, God is all of those things. But God is also holy. And God is also righteous. And Paul says, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What is repentance? Well, it is a radical change of heart and mind. It's when I come to that crossroads in life and I see myself in all my sinfulness and I turn to God and I give my life to God through faith in Jesus Christ. See, that's where repentance leads. It leads you to the cross of Jesus. It's the only way to God. You know, maybe you're here today and and maybe you too are wrongly presuming on the kindness of God. You know, if you want to see the kindness of God, ultimately, God's kindness is seen at the cross of Jesus Christ. But so too is his judgment. That greatest act of love, the greatest sacrifice ever made, God giving his son, God pouring out his judgment against sin upon Jesus on the cross. God's kindness. But then there's God's forbearance. And that really means God holding back the judgment that we deserve. And then God, God's patience. God is patient with us. He gives us opportunity in our lifetime to repent and to trust Jesus Christ to be made right with God. And, and this is the good news. This is the gospel that Paul is so eager to share with those at Rome. That God so loved the world that he gave His only son that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting, eternal life. See, God has provided a way of escape, and it's through faith and repentance. Now, having unmasked all the presumption, Paul now brings this critic to the cold hard reality of that future judgment of God. Look at verse 5. 
Paul says, because of your hard and impenitent heart. You know, if you won't respond to God's kindness, if you won't repent and trust Jesus Christ, Paul says, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul now begins to outline in verses 5 to 11 the principles of God's judgment. Here's the first principle, verse 5. God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's judgment is righteous. Look at verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Rightly falls means according to truth. You know, God's judgment is perfect. There will be no excuses. Every mouth will be stopped. There will be no mistakes, no arguments before him. The second principle, let's look at verse 6. God's judgment is righteous. God's judgment will be personal. Look at verse 6. He will render to each one, each one according to his works. Here is a sobering thought that every single person in this room will one day stand before God. The third principle, still in verse 6. God's judgment is personal. He will render to each one according to his works. That's the third principle. God's judgment will be according to works. That is that God will base his judgment on a review of our lives. Now, we need to explain that. And we need to look at the next four verses, verses 7 to 10, very carefully, because we need to explain that phrase. Now, in verses 7 to 10, there are actually two pairs of verses. Because here in verses 7 to 10, Paul divides humanity into two categories. In verse 7 and 10, he's speaking to Christians. He's speaking to believers, people who are born again of God's Holy Spirit, those who have found that path of repentance and have trusted in Jesus Christ. Now look how Paul characterizes them in verse 7. He says they are those who seek for glory. That is, they live their lives for the glory of God. That's what drives the life of the Christian. That's what should drive everything as a Christian that you do in life. They seek for glory. You see, their lives have been changed by the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. It changes people. It is not a weak thing. It doesn't come into a person's life and leave that person as they are. It doesn't leave them unchanged. It transforms them. It frees them from the dominion of sin. And here's the point that Paul is making in verse 7. There should be evidence of that power in a Christian's life. They will produce work. Paul says in in verse 7, their lives will be marked by patience in well-doing. 
This is the same thing that Paul teaches elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. That we are to work out our salvation. Not work for our salvation, but work it out. God is now at work in you and through you as a Christian. And there should be evidence in my life to that effect. Now, God's judgment is according to works. Christians, too, will stand before God. But not to be judged for our sins. Because Jesus Christ was judged for my sins on the cross. I'm forgiven. And I am justified with God. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I am justified by faith. Now that simply means that I am made right with God, not by my own works, not by anything that I could do, but by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is a key theme that Paul develops in Romans. Look at Romans 3 verse 20. For by works of the law, For by works, no human being will be justified in his sight. Now look at verse 24. Well, look at 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift that you receive through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God will judge every Christian For how they have lived. For how faithful they have been in serving him. And there will be degrees of rewards in the next life. Depending on how faithfully we have served God. Again, Paul will will touch on this later on in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 14 verse, verse 10. For we all, Christians, for we all will stand before the judgment seat of God. Look at verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now now the, the point about, the point that Paul is making here. It matters to God how you live as a Christian. It matters to God how you live. And It may even be the case that God views your life more important than perhaps even you do yourself. Now, my morning reading today, I was reading Luke chapter 19. It's the parable of the pounds. Jesus told the parable of the pounds. And in that parable, there are ten servants. And they are given one pound, a monetary value, it's three months wages. They're given one pound by their master. And the master who is going away, he calls the servants to him. He gives each of them a pound and he says, take this pound and engage in business until I come. Invest the pound. And when the master returns, he calls each of his servants to account. And he discovers one servant has invested that pound and he has made ten pounds. And another has invested that pound and made five pounds. And they are rewarded according to their success. But then there's this one servant. And he's 
going into his pocket and he pulls out from his pocket this handkerchief and he unfolds this handkerchief and he takes the pound out of the handkerchief and he gives it back to his master and he says, Master, I kept it safe. Here's your pound back. You see, he did nothing with it. He, he didn't invest what the master had given him. You know, I, I used to work in the investment business, investing other people's funds. And those investors, they were looking for a return. And you know, the worst thing that you could do in that line of business was to not invest, was to do nothing. Because the investor could do that for themselves. Now the same is true when it comes to the Christian life. That God views his kingdom as his business. And as a Christian, God has called you to be a part of his business. And he wants you to invest your life for him. And the worst thing that you can do is do nothing and not invest. As Christians, we too will stand before God. We will be held accountable for how we have lived. Am I investing my life for God? Am I seeking His glory in the things that I do? Now, to those who seek His glory, what will God give them on that, that day of judgment? Well, look at verse 7. He will give eternal life. Look at verse 10. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. There is more beyond. More beyond. Now look at verses 8 and 9. Paul now turns to the second category of humanity. And in contrast to those who seek for glory, these people are self-seeking. They live for themselves. Verse 8. They do not obey the truth. They have turned their back on God. They obey unrighteousness. These are folks that have never taken that path of repentance. They have never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And God will hold them accountable for their sins. And they too will be judged according to their works. You know, God will know their lives, their works. God will know how much exposure they've had to the gospel during their lifetime, how much knowledge, how much privilege they've enjoyed. And all of that will be taken into account by God in His righteous judgment and justice will be done. And it will be done according to works. And what will the next life hold for those who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ in their lifetime? Well, look at verses 8 and 9. Paul says there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Awful verses. 
But it brings us full circle back to the good news, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel to save you and to change you and to transform you. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, should not perish, but have eternal life. Two final principles of God's judgment. Number four, God's judgment has eternal consequences. You know, it's binding. It's unending. And five, God's judgment will be impartial. Look at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who you think you are. Because God knows you better than you know yourself. And no matter who you are today, God says to you from his word, live your life in the light of eternity. Or to put it in simple language, live your life in the light of the next life. Don't fall into the trap of ne plus ultra thinking that there is no more beyond this life. That death ends all. There is more beyond this life. There is an after this. Don't presume to know God. Understand that the kindness of God leads to repentance. It leads you to the cross of Jesus Christ. Trust Him. Invest your life for God and live to seek His glory. May God bless His word. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father God, we want to thank you for the riches of your kindness. We want to thank you that you are forbearing, that you are patient. Thank you that your kindness leads to Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that Jesus paid it all. And I thank you for every person in this room who has trusted Jesus Christ, who has bowed the knee to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would help us to realize that all to him we owe. That we would invest our lives for your kingdom and for your glory. I pray too for anybody here who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open their heart, open their eyes, that they would come to faith in him. Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you that we've been able to worship you. Thank you that we've been able to open your word. Thank you for people that are visiting with us for the first time today. We pray for your blessing to be upon them. Think of students settling in to new cities and new homes. We pray your hand upon them. And so, our God, we just want to bow and worship as we close our time with you. In Jesus' name, amen.